0: Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petrero Medical. Hi everyone, this is Omar M. Katib, the Director of Growth at Petrero Medical, and this is another episode of Hills and Valleys. I'm at the beautiful Society of Critical Care and Medicine here in San Diego with the former president of the Society, Dr. Jerry Zimmerman, who's had a very busy schedule but has been very kind enough to sit down with us. I'll give you a little bit of background on him. He's a professor of anesthesiology and pediatrics at the University of Washington. He has a variety of research interests, a very, very kind kind gentleman, and I'm going to give him a little opportunity to give us a little bit more color on his background.
1: Thanks, Omer, and good morning, and thanks for this opportunity. So I have been working in uh, pediatric. Critical care medicine
0: for uh, over thirty years. If you could speak a little bit louder, then.
1: So I've been working in pediatric critical care medicine for over thirty years uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and now at the University of Washington in uh, Seattle. So I have seen a a lot of innovation. uh, also, uh, a lot of uh, uh, research that uh, unfortunately has not supported things that we thought were dogma uh, in the past. But this is an exciting uh, uh, area of medicine in which to work. Uh, you go to work and you come home, and uh, you know you've made a difference. And the other thing that's fun about working in critical care is that new things, new technologies uh, frequently filter through the ICU uh, first. And uh, so it's a, an exciting, albeit <laughs> stressful, environment to work. Uh, but we have the advantage of really
0: going to work every day and seeing how we can make a difference. Fantastic. Now of your research interests, I saw that you've done quite a lot of work with pedi- pediatrics and specifically in, s- in sepsis. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: So yes, I have uh, been a researcher in sepsis, I guess, essentially since the beginning of my career. Uh, before uh, going into medicine, I was actually a, a, a cancer researcher. And I actually worked on this enzyme, if we want to get geeky for a second. Uh, we, we love that here. N8, N8 <laughs> DPH oxidoreductase. And uh, it is uh, actually an enzyme uh, that is uh, membrane bound. And uh, it generates superoxide, which is the parent oxyradical uh, uh, metabolite that can be uh, metabolized to uh, hydroxyl radical and hydrogen peroxide and hypochlorous acid, lots of things, uh, not only direct injury, but very important cellular signaling. And I did that as uh, part of uh, my cancer research work. When I became a doctor, and actually during my fellowship, I had the good fortune of uh, working uh, at NIH Hmm. uh, for my research. uh, I sort of translated uh, what I had done before to the same enzyme, but on the neutrophil. Oh, okay. And neutrophil is the, like, infantry person uh, uh, that shows up uh, before just about anything else, maybe a compliment, uh, but uh, this generation of uh, oxygen, uh, oxygen radical uh, metabolites is a, is a key aspect of the host uh, uh, response uh, syndrome involving inflammation. I mean, sepsis is typical, but other things uh, as well. So that's sort of how I got into it as a physician. Uh, and over the years, uh, I am, have been involved with uh, diagnosing sepsis. This is actually the, the neatest, uh, the sexiest research that I'm involved in right now hmm. company, uh, in Seattle uh, treating sepsis. Uh, we are currently about to launch, hopefully, a clinical interventional trial related to steroids. And then... Very interested in uh, long term outcomes after sepsis. In fact, right now we are uh, waiting for uh, decisions trying to get the uh, results of a long term uh, follow up uh, of children after septic shock and their uh, quality of life, the burden and the duration of that morbidity following uh, pediatric sepsis. So I really. I am in, interested in the continuum of care,
0: and <laughs> that's the focus of this meeting, uh, for children with sepsis. Interesting. And it's fascinating to hear So you get so excited about it, because when we think about sepsis, I mean, this is a disease that it, it can be caused by so many different things. It really is a true black box in medicine. And so do do the complicated, sophisticated problems like that, is that what drew you into sepsis and perhaps critical care medicine? I think what drew me into critical care medicine,
1: uh, now you're getting up close and personal for sure, I was originally gonna be uh, an adolescent medicine uh, physician and it turned out during pediatrics, my first rotation was in the PICU and I I had this rotation (laughs) when I said, this is what I want to do. Uh, it is uh, not that adolescent medicine isn't that important at all. That's not the point. But I got so worked up and excited about uh, actually making a difference in real time. I think I think all critical care providers are obsessive compulsive uh, uh, disorder people. Uh, <laughs> they want results now. Uh, they run towards the resuscitation, uh, uh, the code blue uh, signal, etcetera, etc. Cetera. So, for people who like that, and they're all here, uh, this uh, is an exciting uh, place
0: to be. And, and sepsis is just one really of that. So let's, um, you know, give us a great view from the top of the hill. But let's kind of go deep into the valley in terms of what happens when we don't find new ways to not only innovate but perhaps let go of old paradigms and dogmas in medicine. How, how bad does sepsis become? Because from my understanding, it's, it's at the level of a worldwide or global crisis for how many people it, it kills.
1: Well, in fairness, uh, the, the World Health, Health Organization has, has made a difference in the last uh, 10 years. But let me just preface that by saying that in 2019, every three seconds, someone in the world dies of sepsis. Wow. and there's a big burden especially in children who are less than five years of age basically defenseless Uh, there's a big burden on moms who are uh, giving birth to children, very high risk group around the world and uh, this has uh, not only a a huge impact on mortality uh, but we, we now know that adults and children who survive sepsis this this does not go away Mm. there's a big impact on their how they live their lives for children we know at least a year out
0: how does it not go away is it because it affects other organs in the body or what happens Well,
1: Uh, almost certainly related to the degree of organ failure when you're really critically ill uh, your quality of life is affected you can't think clearly You don't pay attention in school. Uh, You don't go back to your job. You're weak. Um, uh, One of our ICU heroes award, uh, Darrell Rakes, who was presented during the opening ceremony, uh, came down with adult acute respiratory distress syndrome after a knee replacement surgery. Hmm. He, this is years ago, and he still challenged uh, yeah. physically uh, uh, recovering from that uh, incident that also involved uh, sepsis. So now he's uh, he's a hero because he's an educator and he's an advocate for p- people facing post-intensive care syndrome. Wow. But this does, I mean, sepsis is sort of the... Uh, gold standard for thinking about this. This problem does not go away when you leave the
0: ICU or mm. the hospital. That's a big, that's a very interesting point because I think it seems that many decades ago with medicine, it, the idea was how do we best identify different pathologies based on symptoms and what we're seeing and it seems that now we've gotten much better about it because of technology, because of you know the practice of medicine. Yes. So now it's more about how do we catch it before it happens, and then what do we do to intervene? Well, you just, in my opinion, you just asked
1: the most important question. Is there a way that we can identify somebody with an infection before they transition to what we call sepsis, which is uh, an infection involving an organ dysfunction, which this person now needs intensive care if it's even available. So that is a a key question, and uh, the uh, new sepsis-3 criteria, uh, I I think there's lots of controversy around it, but personally, uh, I like this new effort uh, because there was uh, actually an effort to uh, talk about the way that we identify the at-risk patients With dad rather than people just sitting around and developing a consensus, which with experts is, is a good way to go about as a first uh, a starting point. But uh, these uh, people who were involved in sepsis sub- 3 uh, actually looked at dad long- longitudinally over time, the mm-hmm. patients in the ED. Uh, He might have a suspicion of being infected and then sometime later he ends up in the ICU with some type of organ dysfunction. So what were the predictors a few hours ago of what was going on with this patient that would have predicted that we need to keep an eye on this person because he's Mm going to have a high likelihood of being sick and needing critical care. Mm these are all clinical criteria that we can measure that uh, a nurse or some other mechanism gets into the electronic uh, medical record. Uh, and we've improved, uh, but the area under the receiver operator curve for actually doing this in a good way, it, it's around 0.7. So. Mm. Uh, the specificity, the sensitivity are both improved maybe over our old uh, methodology, but it's still clin- clinical criteria, and there's still lots of false positives, there's still lots of false negatives. So you can talk about communities of patients, but for a single patient, this patient before you projecting what that person is going to do is still tough. Mm. So. Mm. There is definitely room in the future for sepsis 4 or sepsis 5 for uh, addition of other data input, power analysis of signals uh, that just don't look at a single point in time of a temperature or a respiratory rate. but. Over time, uh, there is an opportunity to look at the genetic makeup of this person who has a fever. And because this patient's genes are like this, whoa, we better pay attention to this because this person has a high risk of becoming hypotension hypotensive or actually looking at uh, gene expression or protein uh, expression in real time and, and this this technology is just around the corner it's going to happen in the next couple of years where we can ask the pac- the question how is this patient responding to what looks like it could be an infection we're not sure we're not sure whether it's a bacteria or a virus But he certainly kind of clinically looks like he has an infection. Can we apply these other modalities of keeping an eye on his vital signs over time, uh, or getting a blood sample and looking how his uh, genome is responding to this situation, Mm. Uh, and uh, we can improve both the sensitivity and the specificity of making a diagnosis of sepsis. There's no question about it. This will be technology that we will use in
0: the future, and it's close at hand. Now, you mentioned something interesting. You know, with... With the continuum of care, the access to things like better genomics, it's becoming more affordable. You know, on one side, we have sensitivity to be able to rule out certain things, the specificity to rule in certain things. Is the next level in medicine to go beyond just sensitivity and specificity and perhaps whatever it would be in between, where you're not ruling out or not ruling in a disease, but there's more of a way to close the loop? Is that the next step? I'm not quite sure what your
1: question is. I view this more like a funnel. Ah, okay. Tell- and up at the top of that funnel, it's okay to be overly sensitive. Okay. Uh, but as we go down this funnel and we apply other things, uh, in addition to very simple uh, clinical criteria, uh, we might add in organ dysfunction, we might add in a power analysis of heart rate or blood pressure. We might add in a biomarker. We take this larger group of patients that we are worried about, and we quickly call down to the population that's at highest risk mm-hmm. uh, for uh, uh, something bad happening, for example, with, with an infection, and, and those are the patients that we really need to clue into. So I see. it is definitely a spectrum, and uh, everybody, you know, responds to an in, uh, injury or illness like an infection uh, differently, but we are learning now that, well, we've known that it's, it's the host, the person, not the infection that ultimately really gets you in trouble. Mm. And if we can define that better, I, I think ultimately we will be able to take care of patients sooner and more
0: accurately than we have in the past. Absolutely. So it seems that being being more focused on Say if you have 100 patients, not all 100 of them are going to be treated the same. Not every person should be treated the same, right? But it sounds like what you're saying is that to be a lot more focused to, find, to identify the high-risk patients so that way the majority of energy and, and, uh, and resources are dedicated to those versus spreading it over, over a larger population who may not need as much focus and resources and just essentially getting more defined and, fo- on, and, and, and defining them.
1: Yes, and I first of all, I have to say that uh, to put this in the proper perspective uh, this is an ideal state and that's what Hmm. we should be uh, trying to achieve Uh, closing this gap between resource limited settings and countries who have everything is really what the whole all of us need to be thinking about as we as as we do our work in this area Uh, and i I guess we have lots of evidence that technology gets less expensive as we uh, increasingly uh, use it but i just wanted to say that in in preference but in preference as I prefer to, you know, what I'm going to say next. The mm-hmm. best example of what you're talking about right now, you're talking about personalized medicine, and everybody's talking about personalized medicine. Well, great, but give me an example. Where are we going to go with that? Well, mm-hmm. there, there's two things that I'm very close to: um, treating patients uh, with refractory uh, hypotension. Cardiovascular failure and sepsis. I guess is you know the most common scenario. Mm-hmm. And the question for at least five decades has been: Do this? Does this drug class, corticosteroids, the one we use nowadays, is hydrocortisone. Does does this drug class improve outcomes? Mm. And there have been I don't know twenty or thirty adult trials. Uh, there is four uh, contemporary adult. Uh, trials uh, in this area that are, you know, very well designed, uh, big numbers uh, and uh, important results. And of these four trials, uh, two of them uh, conclude that corticosteroids don't make any difference. And two Mm. other trials uh, say, well, uh, actually they do. They reduce not only uh, the time of shock, they also reduce mortality, which, is ultimately what you want to see. If you do a meta-analysis of all of these four uh, trials, uh, on the forest plot, in that diamond, summary diamond, you know, it is just, you have to get your magnifying glass out. It is left of the line, but it is almost kissing it. Mm. So this is not a kablammo <laughs> Uh It, it helps, uh, probably, but probably in specific patients. I see. One of the groups of specific patients that I think uh, adult investigators might say in terms of precision is the patients who are sickest, who require the largest amount of support for their low blood pressure with sepsis. This is the group that many people yeah. believe would most benefit from this intervention. Oh. And instead of Exposing all of these other patients to corticosteroids, which further downregulates their adaptive immunity and places them at increased risk for not clearing the infection, uh, reactivation of viruses, or getting a hospital-acquired infection. Just don't treat that group with corticosteroids and, and get rid of that risk, and really focus in on these much sicker patients. Mm. That's a clinical cut for precision medicine. Then there is the uh, genomic work, and uh, there's people doing this, but Hector Wong, who is a pediatric intensivist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital has been working on this for 10 years at least. Mm. And he has uh, identified 100 genes that are most upregulated and most downregulated in pediatric sepsis. And he's also identified a group of proteins that are differentially expressed in pediatric uh, sepsis. So he has both approaches, but Cut to the chase, he, can, he has identified kids with different endotypes based on their messenger RNA expression. Uh, and uh, if you place the, if you plot this on a heat map, uh-huh. you can visually see these two groups of kids are different. It's easy to see. Based on the messenger RNA. Based on the messenger wow. RNA expression. And there's this group here on the left, and the heat map is almost blue. What does that mean? It means that these genes are all downregulated. What are these genes, Hector? They're all, not all, many of them, maybe most of them are related to adaptive immunity. So huh. in, in, in one group of children with a specific endotype, giving steroids for their septic shock actually increases their risk of dying. Whereas this other group, uh, who are not as down-regulated, have a different endotype, different gene expression signature, these children actually can benefit from corticosteroids. So wow. that's, that's really that's what the cancer people have been doing for a while, and it's very exciting. This is just one little tiny snippet, but that is a good example of how... How we could use precision medicine to identify the right therapy for the right group, and and we are planning on prospectively validating this appro- mm. approach in a uh, a group of uh, over a thousand
0: kids, and we're just waiting for the final word on NIH funding. That's fantastic. Now. We're getting out of the valley, going higher up into the hills into a, sort of a brighter future. You mentioned something earlier when we first met, and I'm, I'm very curious to, to learn about it. But you mentioned uh, this idea, and correct me if I'm misstating, usual care? Yes. Tell me about that.
1: So, usual care is um, the, the interdisciplinary team, for sure. Uh, I would say, you know, uh, with... Uh, Uh, oversight from the uh, intensivist who is uh, helping uh, provide leadership for this team, uh, but a lot of focus on the infantry bed care providers. Mm. You know, the nurse is there, Uh, the uh, respiratory therapist is there. This idea of how do we uh, provide this usual care for our patients and why is it that important? Well. If you look at uh, children, in the 1950s, if you were a child and you had a diagnosis of septic shock, your chances of dying were probably about 80%. Now, if you have pediatric septic shock uh, and you're treated in a pediatric intensive care unit and you have organ dysfunction, your risk of dying in the hospital is 10%. 10%. We have no magic bullets that have come along during that time. The only thing that has changed is how we provide this usual care to our patients. Fifty years ago, nobody washed their hands when they were in the intensive care. Yeah.
0: And then Semmelweis came around.
1: <laughs> well, Semmelweis came around 150 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago, and, and said we should be washing our hands. But when he- I started as a pediatric resident, we didn't wash our hands every time we went in the room. Interesting. There were still people smoking in the hospital in the intensive care unit Huh? started. So we have made, uh, with quality improvement, uh, lots of changes. Like a, we used to just assume that when you're sick, you're going to get secondarily infected because your immune system is mostly down regulated. And, and that was just sort of inevitable. We'd put these uh, central lines in and know probably you know we'll be careful but they're going to get infected that thinking is completely gone now and mm. at most hot in most hospitals if you have an hospital acquired infection involving a central venous catheter this is a uh, this is a reportable event by that ICU and it gets reviewed in some detail and it's a black mark a red mark uh, with your care So. That is uh, sort of uh, a prologue to saying uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine has uh, helped support this idea, this program called ICU Liberation.
0: ICU Liberation, okay. And the A,
1: B, C, D, E, F bundle. Huh. A, always treat pain first. Um, B, uh, undertake both a uh, daily spontaneous breathing trial and a spontaneous awakening trial. C, be cognizant of the choice of sedatives that you're using, if you're even going to use uh, sedatives. B. Monitor. Uh, D, monitor for delirium. Try to minimize it by uh, choosing uh, your drugs correctly. E, early mobilization. Get that patient out of bed. Don't let him sit there. That's the wrong thing to do. And F, get the family engaged and empowered in the care plan. So, in the last two years, the, there's been these two, I would say, landmark articles. The first was by Marianne uh, Barnes Daly and colleagues from Southern California, uh, published in Critical Care Medicine. And then this year, just very recently, uh, Brenda Pun and her colleagues, two different studies that looked at this IC liberation implementation with outcomes. And what they did is uh, very clever. They looked at the proportion of the bundle elements that were actually applied to given patients uh, over their course in the intensive care unit on a day-to-day basis. And what they found was this dose-response relationship. The greater the implementation of these six bundle elements, the better the outcome. Decreased risk of death, decreased duration of um, uh, mechanical ventilation, decreased risk of coma and delirium, getting out of the ICU faster, getting out of the hospital faster, uh, going home instead of to a nursing home. The signal for this intervention, uh, you know, it's it's fair to say is. Given the limitations of maybe there's a study design but this signal is is bigger than any fancy new biologic uh uh, or other things that we have done so we really need to pay attention to this and i think uh, sccm for example is is taking this concept on the road it needs to be Mm. disseminated because there's really strong evidence that it's valuable
0: and it makes sense interesting I have, I have a couple more questions again and we want to be mindful of your time so you know you mentioned some very exciting things uh Coming out from SCCM and coming coming from the hard work of your colleagues, you know we mentioned uh, Samuel Semmelweis earlier, and for those who are not familiar, Semmelweis. Ignis, Ignis, thank you, Ignis Semmelweis. Yes, thank you. My
1: wife is a former infection control practitioner, and
0: this is their hero as I am. And yeah, he is he's he's definitely here. And for those who don't know, just a quick quick. Tidbit about him, or not tidbit, his history is that he introduced uh, hand washing 150 years ago when it was not standard of care and showed that people were dying because physicians were not washing their hands, but it wasn't adopted until 20 years later. And there's this cognitive bias called the Semmelweis effect where you reject new evidence because you are holding on to an old paradigm. So with your, with physicians you know and nurses who might be holding on to an old paradigm how do you work together with the society and, and your colleagues to help them to help illuminate these new new ways and modalities of treating patients so that way it doesn't take 20 years yes yeah, so I mean you, yeah, you the, the fact
1: is uh, the important fact is uh, you recognize or identify a new uh, intervention or approach beta blockers after myocardial infarction. Uh, yes, it's taken 20 years for people to get on board and say, OK, we really should do this because this is the right thing uh, to do. Um, you know, most most people uh, make their decisions on a variety of uh, with a variety of inputs a big strong one is their training and their experience mm-hmm. um, yeah. obviously we, we don't have uh, evidence for a lot of things we do and that should be the gold standard uh, and there you know our Nice approaches that everybody respects on getting uh, getting to that uh, evidence uh, basis, but I think what uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine does is first of all it uh, it has a forum uh, once a year, a congress, and I would say this is the largest congress of critical care. uh, uh, And I didn't say medicine; I said critical care because it is interdisciplinary. The largest congress ever. For critical care anywhere, uh, so people are brought together. There's there's lectures, of course, but there's now there's pro con debates.
0: Ah, there's very interesting. The experts and
1: and have the uh, audience uh, uh, ask a question. There is this. Classroom situation where it's turned around, uh, where instead of the teacher uh, addressing the students, the students are, provide the primary input, act, acting the teachers. There's there's social media, uh,
0: very active group on Twitter.
1: We love it. Very active group on Twitter, and uh, another way of engaging people uh, uh, in what's ever going on. And, the social media thing is now embedded in our all of our journals too: critical care medicine, pediatric critical care medicine, and the new journal uh, uh, ICU explorations. The the. the The idea from the editors is to engage people in a discussion of how can this article, in a faster way, change the practice at the bedside, because this is what, it looks like this is what we should be doing, not Mm -hmm. the way we were doing it before. So, I I think, uh, as a way of describing all of this, uh, oh, the collaborative, the, the SCCM is an expert on. Uh, developing collaboratives so people who are trying to solve problems can come uh, into a forum where they talk to each other and discover, eh, don't do it that way, uh, have you thought about this, or we did it this way and we found this was challenging, but if we addressed this, we could make it work. Uh-huh. CCM is expert at that. So there are all of these uh, different approaches that really address the idea of let's be open-minded about this, let's be evidence-based. As much as we can, and let's have the discussion about where where we should go next.
0: Fantastic. One final question, and we'll let you go. So, do, I believe Doctor, uh, the new president is Doctor uh, Heatherly H- Bailey. Heatherly Bailey, yeah, and and I heard that you uh, uh, did a nice job of, I guess, introducing and and helping to induct her. But any 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 words of advice from from a former president to the new president?
1: Well, Heather is going to be great. Um, She's a firecracker. She has lots of energy. Uh, She listens, uh, and she's always uh, engaged and uh, reaching out. What's unique about Heather, uh, and it exemplifies, again, the interdisciplinary nature of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, is that she is our first person from emergency medicine to be president. Now, the reason that this is a big deal uh, is that it fits in perfectly with the, uh, the theme of this Congress, which is the continuum of care. Mm-hmm. So I talk, we talk about what happens to these patients after they leave the ICU, and we really have a responsibility to these people. Uh, after they survive their critical illness and even leave the hospital, we're looking at ways that we can help get those patients back to their normal uh, lifestyle. But on the other end of this uh, uh, continuum is public education, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, pre-hospital care, what are the ambulance drivers doing, what are our colleagues in the emergency medicine doing, and how are we should collaborate with them to make this transition from the ED into the ward or into the ICU seamless. Heather is going to be an expert uh, on, on getting uh, uh, that part of our. Job integrated
0: uh, into what we're most familiar with. We Fantastic. Need to be working on both ends. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us. How, how can how can everyone uh, find you on Twitter? I believe you have a Twitter handle, correct? I do have a Twitter handle. It's J E uh, R J O H H Z I M
1: M. That is my handle. Fantastic. Uh, so yeah. So I uh, I became a. Uh, Melissa from SCCN pushed me into the uh, the Twitter world, and uh, it's great, isn't it? uh, It was a new experience. Yes, I went in kicking and screaming, but came out saying, "Yeah, that was pretty interesting." Uh, so uh, I think I had uh, just about sixty-one hundred followers when I left. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, and that was huh. way up from uh, where I I got it uh, from Ruth, the last president, and I, you know, I'm sure it will exponentially expand. But now I am on my own account, so I'm I think
0: I'm at three hundred and twenty. So I have... oh, will get we'll help you get that <laughs> higher. No, 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 that's perfectly fine. Well, hey, we really appreciate you spending some time with us and, and sharing some some wonderful uh, pearls of wisdom and a great look at the future. It's very exciting. Thank you. Thanks for asking, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you. You bet.